0: the Anesthesia Podcast. Um, hello, I think we're live now. Um, so I'd just like to start by welcoming everybody who's tuning in, and I'm very pleased to chair this discussion on the, um, I suppose, hot, hotly anticipated uh, updated guidelines for the timing of elective surgery after COVID-19 infection. And I suppose a lot of this was uh, has been driven by the recent Omicron variant, the surge in vaccinations in the population. Um, So just for a little background for everybody who's tuning in, um, before I introduce our panel, um, back in March 2021, when Omicron was just a twinkle in the eye of the WHO, uh, the COVID Surge Collaborative found evidence of increased risk of mortality and other poor outcomes for those who tested positive for COVID-19 and had surgery in the period of weeks zero to six after diagnosis. So this drove guidance, which I'm sure most of you are very familiar with, which recommended that surgery should be avoided within seven weeks of a diagnosis of COVID-19. So since then, um, we've seen the rise and fall of the Delta variant, and then more recently the Omicron variant, which is the dominant variant in the UK and much of the world at the moment, as well as an increasingly vaccinated population. So this has prompted the updated guidelines um, which still retain the seven-week wait, spoiler alert. However, in this is crucial. They focus much more on balancing risk and emphasising shared decision-making. So we're very lucky this evening to have a multidisciplinary panel of experts who've contributed to these guidelines to the, discuss them this evening. So I'd like to introduce Mrs. Scarlett McNally, Dr. Kareem elbow Dadley, and Professor Tim Cook. So Scarlett is a consultant orthopaedic surgeon in Eastbourne, and previously Director of Medical Education. She was an elected council member of the Royal College of Surgeons of England from 2011 to 2021, the ninth woman to hold that position. Um, She's the Deputy Director of the Centre for Perioperative Care and has been Deputy Chair of Women in Surgery Subcommittee at the Royal College of Surgeons, delighted to hear that. Um, And as well as all her clinical uh, qualifications, she has a Master's in Clinical Education and an MBA. Um, Kareem is consultant Anesthetist and guys in St. Thomas's in London, where he is the research and development lead for theatres, anesthesia, and perioperative medicine. He is on the editorial board for anesthesia and former executive editor of anesthesia reports and reviews several um, high-impact journals. Um, he's also the scientific officer for the Difficult Airway Society and has a master's in perioperative medicine. And lastly, uh, Tim is a consultant um, in anaesthesia and ICU in the Royal United Hospitals in Bath. Um, He's an honorary professor of anaesthesia in the University of Bristol and uh, was awarded the Royal College of Anaesthetists Macintosh professorship in 2012 to 2013, as well as the Difficult Airway Society professorship in 2014. Um, He's the psychologist advisor on airway, and he's known to many for his work as the Director of the National Audit Projects, and was awarded an OPE for service to anaesthesia during the COVID-19 pandemic um, in the Queen's Birthday Honours List in 2021. So quite an esteemed panel today. Um, So I'm going to kick off with a question for Kareem, and question on everybody's lips. Why did they need to update these guidelines, Kareem, and how did you do it?
1: yeah thanks very much rose um and i think that that was um a, a completely unnecessary introduction <laughs> to me uh, i'm i'm pretty much a jobbing anaesthetist like everyone else and and uh, uh, my experiences has been that we had In January, uh, lots and lots of patients who uh, were vaccinated, and lots of patients who had recently had the Omicron infection um, uh, of SARS CoV 2. So, the high population prevalence from December, January, and and onwards really meant that the chance of, of coming across a patient who had recently or within the last seven weeks or so that had infection, either symptomatic, asymptomatic, pre-symptomatic, the, the, the chances of us coming across uh, those patients was very high. Um, we had lots of surgeons, lots of anesthetists asking lots of questions about the validity of our previous recommendations from last year, which uh, were really seated d- quite deeply in uh, uh, reasonably robust evidence uh, it, and and you know in uh, 2021 as you as he highlighted the covid surge study uh, really uh, hammered home the risks uh, were so substantially increased in the 6 weeks um uh, after an infection the risks of, of surgery knowing that there was omicron knowing that uh, it, it, the, the the disease process seemed to be a little bit different to previous uh, uh, variants of SARS-CoV-2. And uh, uh, tying in with that is vaccination. There was just loads of questions. So, so, so we realized that people needed a little bit of support. Uh, patients needed support, surgeons needed support, anesthetists needed support, um, yeah. policymakers needed support. And so we thought we would come together and try and uh, and look at whatever data there there were out there and we started this actually in january um uh when when you know you know we were still a little bit all over the place with with, with omicron um, and we decided to look at the evidence and try our best to uh give something as robust as possible given the dearth of evidence uh, to support uh clinicians and patients to you know make the safest decisions they can for the timing of of their surgery
0: mm-hmm. okay um and I suppose, as you've mentioned, surgeons and Isla got together, was consensus easy to achieve, Scarlett, working with um, everybody collaboratively?
2: Um, yes, thank you. It Actually, it was, and we worked together very well. Um, I, I kind of want to pay, pay tribute to the other authors on the paper. Um, mm-hmm. There was uh, Justin Kueh as a PhD student, and he uh, amassed the evidence uh, mainly for us, and it was really pretty clear the case um and the other thing is the situation that we're in at the moment with patients really wanting um to know what's happening um and um organizations trying to get services back running again and with different spikes and things that sort of thing yeah. so um it was the um pressure to do something was was there the evidence was pretty clear and the- First time round, um, the evidence did show that there's about a three or four times greater mortality if people are in the seven weeks after um, having had COVID if they have an operation. So um, this is affecting every single patient, and that um, that's what we need to. That's what we're all about. That's what we need to get. It's getting it right for the patient, um, and we needed to make sure that that was um, uh, going to move forward and be the right thing to do. So. Consensus was very easy to achieve. We all want the same things. And actually it's not just the clinical groups, it, it teams, it's the administrative staff, the managers trying to plan um who needs which bed, that kind of thing. Um and yeah,
0: yeah we're all there. Pathways and yeah. Um so a lot of people, um I'm gonna direct this question to Tim. A lot of people are focusing on the seven weeks, and you know, that, that was what the last guideline says. But you know, how has this changed, Tim, for I suppose patients, doctors, hospitals?
3: Yep, um, I was trying to be polite and being mute. Um, so in some ways things haven't changed, um, but we did notice that when the guidance uh, was previously published, that a lot of people seemed to focus on a one-line message, um, which is no surgery for seven weeks after, after COVID, or after sars cov yeah. so, so after COVID. That wasn't the message last time round, and uh, we very much worked to try, try and re-emphasise that the message has two elements to it which is that um, the default should be uh, that surgery is deferred for seven weeks after infection with SARS-CoV-2, um, but that must be balanced against the risks and benefits of doing that. So that is only, that is, that is the starting point, but against that you have to um, assess uh, the patients, uh, the, the, the benefits of continuing with surgery uh, and the risks of continuing with surgery. And if delay, the risk of delay exceeds uh, the risk of of carrying on, um, then you should carry. Then you should carry on. Um, one of the points to make is that um, again, and we're again leaning very much on the um, COVID surge data, is that the risk remains elevated for that whole six-week period. So it's not that the risk is very high immediately after infection, and then wanes uh, progressively over that six-week period down to nothing, and in seven weeks it's okay. The data from that, um, from those papers, the three papers, um, all suggest that the risk remains elevated f- throughout that period, and then cuts off quite sharply after six weeks. And that's why the, the seven weeks remains an important cutoff. You either delay for the seven weeks, or you don't delay if you're going to delay, you ought to delay for that whole seven weeks. And if you're not going to delay, then other than waiting for 10 days for the infection, uh, the infectiousness to clear and clarity about the severity of the infection, uh, there's no need to, to, to wait longer than that.
0: Okay, um, you know, there, I, having read the paper myself last night, I stayed up late, um, I saw that you know, you've you have acknowledged that there is not. The supportive evidence, um, you know, throughout this document, um, and I know Omicron is just something we've seen in the last few months. Um, do you know if there's going to be evidence from this Omicron variant that the guidelines may be adjusted in the future? Is there work out there at the moment that uh, might think, look at?
3: I think Kareem might yeah. come to that in a minute, but can I just comment uh, partly on on that and, and and what Scarlett said? So I completely agree with Scarlett that we found it very easy to reach consensus, but that was after considerable discussions. So we spent a long time uh, discussing the evidence or the lack of evidence and how to approach that. Um, uh, The soft evidence and the harder evidence and how we should manage that relative absence of new evidence. Um, And there was a temptation in the new environment of uh, multiply vaccinated uh, individuals, remembering that only three vaccinations are particularly useful against Omicron, um and the fact that Omicron is a clinically uh, significantly less severe disease. But but the 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 evidence um as it as it as it has been published uh continues to state that um the surgery within those seven weeks is is very risky. And we didn't feel that it was appropriate um in the knowledge of the evidence that does exist uh to do what was tempting which is to say uh let's 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 drop the the delay to nothing at all um what we have emphasized though is that the the decision-making process which i think we'll come on to later is 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 pragmatic in that regard um and we've emphasized both uh that balanced discussion of risk and benefit And also the fact that this is a shared decision, it's a decision made between the clinicians and between informed patients or their carers.
0: Okay. So I suppose um, in terms of, you know, people have fixed on this seven weeks and, you know, Omicron is mild. But I suppose in the previous studies, we'd seen that asymptomatic patients were as had the same risk. Um, So are we looking, Kareem, do you know if we are looking at Omicron and its effects after surgery? Like, will this evidence emerge? Will we always be waiting seven weeks? What do you think?
1: Yeah, thanks, Rose. Um, I think that's a really important point, um, because if asymptomatic infection previously was associated with an increased risk, how do we know that Omicron, which is uh, clinically less severe, is not associated Mm. with increased risk? I think we, I think there's, um, there's that pressure of of the the backlog, uh, but the backlog is looking at the population in in general, and what we need to be doing is we need to be focusing on what's safest for each individual patient, you know, and personalizing our uh, our decision making for each patient. Not just thinking about there's 6 million patients waiting, let's get through as fast as possible, but thinking about let's do what's uh, what's best for each patient in front of us. Absolutely. We don't have the evidence now. As we've repeatedly said, uh, there is evidence being collected now. I know that the COVID surge group um, uh, uh, headed up by Anil Bangu and Dmitry Nepikoreyev, they're uh, collecting data on perioperative infection with omicron uh, and looking at the impact of vaccination and the impact of perioperative omicron infection uh, on post operative outcomes so we're still waiting uh, to to find out a little bit more i expect there may be some early data on that in the next couple of months hopefully uh, and you know if the data suggests that omicron is absolutely fine and it has no increase in uh, in perioperative risk then th- that's fair enough but if if there is any evidence to suggest that omicron is still associated with increased perioperative risk uh, then i think that we uh, you know we we really need to be thoughtful with uh, our clinical decision making with our patients
3: mm-hmm.
0: yeah so i suppose this isn't all about Timing per se as well. It's about being practical and pragmatic. You know, the, you've really emphasised in this paper on risk, risk assessment, balancing risk, and you know, shared decision making with your patients. Scarlett, can I ask you, as a surgeon, if your patient contacts you and says, "I've had I've COVID. I'm due to have my hip replaced in you know two weeks' time. I barely knew I had it. It's been really mild." how would you approach this? Thank you. Um, And that's absolutely the case that people will find themselves
2: in. It's the individual patient. And the the problem is it does seem that this virus has effects on the immune system and effects on um, people getting blood clots, um, as well as respiratory effects. So um, we do need to be cautious um so then with each patient it's going through a shared decision making process of what are the benefits what are we call it brand benefits risks alternatives and what if we do nothing um and if you look on the center for Perioperative care website there's a whole page on and videos on shared decision making and it's actually a nice requirement now from last mm-hmm. year so it's about that shared decision making of of what's the risk of proceeding. And what's the risk of delaying? Um, and and also trying to get people as good as they can possibly be. So optimizing um, our patient representative talks about get fit for your anaesthetic as if you were preparing for a marathon. So if you'd have yeah. cancelled your your going in for a marathon in a couple of weeks, maybe you should cancel your operation um, because getting through an anaesthetic and everything that and getting your um, arms and legs to work again after your um with crutches and your muscles and your nutrition and everything to work as best as you possibly can um maybe you need some extra time um added to the the process
0: um, yeah.
2: as tim said it's either delay or carry on so yeah. each person will be a different point that you come yeah. to with the discussion and it's very
0: much you know patient included in this dis- decision-making is what you're emphasizing here. Can I just so, add one point? Yeah, out. There is actually a patient information leaflet in the
2: appendix. Um, so that's something you could share with patients. Thank
0: you. Yeah. We might get Mike to pop that up on um, anesthesia's Twitter as well, just to um, for people if they're watching. Um, I suppose we're talking a lot about risk here. And... Um, I think maybe there's a few of us, myself included, who might like a refresher on absolute versus relative risk. So I might go to the professor for this one. Um, if you might give us a, a quick um, recap on uh, absolute and relative risk when it comes to something like the risk for
3: uh, surgery with after COVID-19. Um, if you don't mind. Yeah, so we <laughs> we put a box in the paper just to sort of clarify this because it's very easy to um uh, hide true risk when one talks about relative risk so you can say oh the risk is increased tenfold the risk is decreased tenfold and if that if that risk in the first place is tiny then amplifying it or decreasing it by a large factor may still not mean it's a substantial risk and in a way so what covid surge looked at was population risk so it was a large group of patients And both for blood clots, well, for blood clots and for uh, respiratory complications, lung complications, and for death, um, it noted that broadly speaking, certain factors uh, early surgery, uh, increased age, increased comorbidity, increased severity of surgery or extent of surgery tended to increase um, the risk of all those factors by about threefold. In broad terms, sometimes it was two and a bit, sometimes it was just below four, but broadly threefold. Three. Okay. So what does that mean for, for, for individual patients? So what does that population risk mean for individual patients? And the, the point is that it is that it means very different things for different patients. So if a patient is relatively high risk, so let's pick a patient who's got a 1% chance of dying after surgery, um, or maybe a 10% chance of of complications. Um, if their risk is, is increased threefold, then their um then their risk of uh, of of dying is increased to three to three percent, the risk of inf- of lung infection of, of lung complications increased to 30 percent. If we compare that to a very low-risk patient who has a tenth of the starting risk, so has a risk okay. of instead of one in a hundred, one in a thousand, so they have a 0.1% mortality risk and a one percent risk of of um, lung infection and if the same multiplier is applied to them then the impact in terms of their so their mortality risk increases from 0.1 percent one in a thousand to 0.3 percent or roughly one in 300 and uh, the risk of uh, lung complications increases um, tenfold that so in, in terms of the if you go back to the mortality yeah. The, in both cases, the risk has doubled. The patient who started with a 1% uh, mortality risk, their, their risk has increased. so trebled, we said didn't trebled? So their risk has increased by 2% to 3%. Whereas the patient who had low risk starts at 0.1%, has increased by 0.2% to 0.3%. So the extent of the increase in risk depends very much on your baseline risk. And so we'll probably come to it, we'll come to a risk tool, but we start by focusing very much on the patient's baseline risk and then how their risk is modified. And unless you risk assess patients to start with, then the conversation and the shared decision-making is very difficult in simple terms. The higher risk the patient is to start with, the greater the impact of going ahead early is likely to be um, than um, than if the patient's lower risk.
0: Yeah, and they're the patients you want to capture, really, as much uh, that the, those higher risk.
3: Yeah, it is um, the greatest the greatest risk and the greatest mitigation by yeah, by, by, by postponing surgery.
0: Yeah um thank you for that that was a uh, very clear and nice to nice to hear it explained so well um i suppose kareem i might jump back to you um there's four steps of communicating this risk to patients can you go through those with us please from the paper you've got quite a nice um graph like in the paper as well
1: Okay, I, I don't disagree that it's a it's a nice graphic um <laughs> uh, it was uh, it's gone through a multitude of iterations uh including some very complex versions with numbers and arrows uh, to a slightly uh, more digestible version which it is now but effectively as you said there's four steps really that we need to be uh, doing uh, and yeah. Leading on from Tim's um, uh, very clear explanation of of uh, baseline risk um, and additional risk. so the first step is we should really be assessing the patient's baseline risk. So let's go back to that patient of yours that um, uh, calls Scarlet and says, "I've got uh, I've got a hip replacement in two weeks' time, mm-hmm. um, uh, and I've just been tested positive uh, for for uh, SARS CoV two. I'm asymptomatic." So the first thing that Scarlett will do. Um, uh, or probably um scarlet's registrar or sho um uh, the first thing uh, that uh, they will do is they will determine that patient's baseline risk so you work out is this patient high risk intermediate risk or low risk
0: and what and we, do you use for that cream?
1: so uh, so we we suggested any validated tool yeah. to determine mortality risk and complication risk the tool that we think is Probably most appropriate here is the SORT2 tool, which uh, uh, uses uh, data based on uh, what type of operation uh, the patient is having, some basic uh, patient characteristics. And it also, which makes it a lot more sensitive, is it has a a clinician uh, um, uh, feedback into that tool to say, what do you think this -hmm. patient's risk is? So we think that using a tool such as the SORT tool Is not a bad idea to help determine this patient's baseline risk. Risk, okay. So we start off by working out that patient's baseline risk. So so, um, Scarlett, for example, may may say, well, listen, this patient is uh, uh, 75 years old, ASA3, um, uh, and works out their their baseline risk using the sort uh, uh, tool. The next step is to work out what additional risk. that SARS-CoV-2 infection would present to that patient were they to have surgery within that seven-week window. So we go to this um, uh, patient who is having uh, hip surgery in two weeks, and we work out uh, um, uh, one of the five risk factors. So age over 70, mm-hmm. ASA physical status of three to five,
3: Yeah
1: the severity of surgery, whether it's major, intermediate, uh, or minor, whether the patient has ongoing symptoms of uh, COVID-19, and mm-hmm. if the patient has been previously hospitalized. Okay. So We're working out that additional layer of risk that this patient has. More than one risk factor suggests that this additional risk is high.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, one risk factor suggests that it is an intermediate level of additional risk, And if there's none of these uh, uh, five risk factors, so age, ASA, uh, severity of surgery, ongoing symptoms, and if they've previously been hospitalized, if there's none of them, then this patient is low risk uh, of uh, um, uh, proceeding with surgery within seven weeks. So step one, baseline risk. Step two, work out additional risk. And then we need to work out what the uh, risks are of deferring surgery for seven weeks. So if uh, we, we've got what this patient's risk factor and risk profile looks like, but we really need to be balancing that against what happens if we delay surgery for this patient. Okay. Now, some may say that a patient um, uh, having a hip replacement that's very elective, uh, that could be delayed for beyond seven weeks, and that's fine. but we don't really know what this patient's profile. They may be, they may have severe pain. Uh, they may be uh, uh, debilitated by, by this hip. So So you have to be um, uh, very patient-centric and and balance the risks of proceeding against the risks of deferring for seven weeks. Mm -hmm. And then the final step is effectively agree with that patient using shared decision making what the right thing to do for that patient is now that we've determined their risk, uh, their baseline risk, their additional risk, and their risks of delaying surgery. And we make that decision with patients to either proceed, defer for seven weeks, or actually, and we built this in, um, and this was actually a really important um, suggestion from our patient representative, who was one of the authors uh um uh sue she was brilliant and she said well what if i don't know and i just want to think about it so we've we've actually built into that tool to say i haven't decided yet i want to think about it
2: okay can i just dive in that the sort tool you can get on sortsurgery.com uh freely available and you don't need any blood tests or anything it's it's quite a simple thing to do yeah
0: so you can kind of do it on the fly yeah yeah very good um Thank you, Karim. That's very comprehensive. So it's kind of a very stepwise approach. Follow the, follow the guide, the guidance, and you should be able to come to a solution um, to the question. Because I suppose this is the que- I mean, it's one of the most frequently asked questions in our work WhatsApp group. You know, what's the timing with COVID after you know, waiting for surgery? Um, I suppose just another thing you guys touched on in the um, guidelines was um, encouraging vaccination and um, uh, pre-op isolation and balancing uh, the, the um, how long patients should um, be isolating for their surgery. Um, is this a fun thing that you uh, had difficulty coming to an agreement on because I know that initially we'd been asking patients to isolate for two weeks before their surgery, move to kind of five days, three days. What was the kind of the team consensus on that, uh, Scarlett? If, if you could. Thanks. And in in terms of
2: isolating for surgery, that there is a downside in that people um, can be deconditioned, mm-hmm. um, and there's some evidence of. A possible slightly worse result from people just having stayed at home and not done anything got sunlight got some exercise and so forth um so it's, it's again it's another risk to balance um uh, i in fact had a hip replacement uh last year and i got a static exercise bike and we need to encourage people to to do whatever they can to mitigate the risks of isolating because everything's balancing um risks um i didn't know if one of the others wants to come in on vaccination but that's that's got quite strong evidence i believe
0: yeah do you, do you uh, routinely encourage your patients as you ask them to get vaccinated if they're unvaccinated? Um, just asking me, yes. Yeah, yeah. Because it does make a
3: difference. In a
0: patient
2: clinic, yeah. Um, it does make a difference to um, whether you get it, how badly you get it. Mm-hmm. And if you haven't got it, then you can't be tr- transmitting it to others. So on those three things, it is one thing that people, people really can do. Yeah, Um,
1: Can I I just um, touch upon that vaccination point as well? The one thing just to to bear in mind, we had serious challenges in in working out whether vaccination in itself, uh, being unvaccinated is an additional risk factor or not. The data suggests that that it it has an impact on reducing severity. But the other thing to bear in mind is we're, we're often thinking about what happens to the patients before surgery. But if a patient is vaccinated, uh, their risk of having severe uh, SARS-CoV-2 either perioperatively or postoperatively is reduced and actually outcomes are not just based on what happens in the lead up to surgery or on the day of surgery but it's also what happens to the patient's postoperatively when they go home mm-hmm. so so there's a real strength to to vaccination um uh, uh preoperatively to reduce pre intra and post operative uh, um risks of uh severity of COVID-19
3: yeah
0: definitely agree with that
3: um, um so, i come in on, on my, the third chorus <laughs> i think that um you know there's been an element of um altruism throughout this throughout the pandemic in terms of individ- individuals getting vaccinated so many of the young people who got vaccinated um there's been an altruistic element about that about protecting other people by them not passing on the infection to others Uh, We know that hospitals have been locations uh, with increased risk of infection, uh, both for staff who then have to um, leave work and can't uh, undertake their services, can't treat patients um, and for patients. And um, with with some patients being very frail and at risk in hospital and patients who get get um, infected in hospital, they are at risk as well. So. The vaccinated patient not only is protecting themselves, but they're also protecting those they may come in contact with, both staff and other patients, and also protecting the system. Um, uh, the pandemic has not finished. Um, infections will continue uh, to occur. Mm-hmm. And with the lifting with the lifting of precautions, it's likely, at least in the in the short term, that, that infections will increase within hospitals there's still about one in 20 individuals in the uk who are who are currently infected and so we do need uh, to protect the system as well if we have staff who are sick if we have patients who are unnecessarily uh, uh, sick in hospital and we have wards that are cohorted or closed um, then uh, our ability to address the surgical backlog and other elements of the service will be hampered
0: yeah um, thank you Yeah, I mean all really valid points and great to see three anaesthetists and the surgeon coming out strongly for vaccines um, so I suppose <laughs> uh, this guidance is great um, it's here we have it today uh, as you say the pandemic is not over do you anticipate that we'll need to update the guidance again anybody <laughs> I'll open it to all of you
1: Yeah, probably. Okay. When do you think? Uh, When we get evidence. (laughs) If evidence uh, um, emerges that suggests that um, uh, some of our recommendations and suggestions are no longer applicable, then I think it's absolutely um, appropriate for us uh to to relook and uh, update and you know we've shown that we're we're um agile enough to do so in the last year we had evidence last year we suggested guidelines and that was implemented uh, nationally internationally actually um uh, based on the 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 um uh, paper we published last year and we responded based on uh, the changing picture Um, So if new evidence suggests that it's still high risk, then we still may need to publish a new uh, set of uh, uh, recommendations um, uh, to to help people continue to do what's safe for their patients. And, you know, if their evidence comes out and says that um, uh, it's over, it doesn't do anything, press on, ignore, doesn't matter, uh, then I think that we would still need to um, uh, publish something to say uh, that uh, seven weeks is no longer applicable.
0: Perfect. Yeah. Everybody else in agreement?
3: Yeah. I think it's perhaps worth worth commenting that you know these are not the only guidelines that exist on the topic. So yeah. uh, there were guidelines particularly focused on um, cardiovascular risk, which were published in I think in JAMA um, a couple of weeks ago. And although they weren't identical, uh, the tone and broad content of them was largely uh, was largely the same. Um, in terms of cardiovascular perioperative risk or patients who've had cardiovascular problems associated with COVID. And there are are Australasian guidelines as well. Those are perhaps go back a little bit longer as to the um, ASA guidelines, but those are largely in line with our guidelines, um, the original guidelines. They probably, I I imagine, are looking to update, but um, these guidelines are not out of step with, with, with guidelines from other locations globally.
0: Can I ask uh, one, uh, I suppose we should wrap up soon enough, um, but one last question. Um, Do these apply to children, these guidelines? Or, you know, is there, have you, you know, you've included a patient cohort group age zero to 29. What, What do we do for kiddies? They're always getting coughs and colds. We're often deferring them for other reasons other than COVID. I work in a, a hospital that looks after children and adults, and you know, it's quite a common question. And Kareem,
1: yeah, should I should I, so so actually, the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health um, have uh, some really good guidelines on elective surgery in children. I think that these guidelines uh, are predominantly applicable to adults. Um, the, the most robust evidence, uh, out there is primarily in adults because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the risk of, um, patients, pediatric patients having surgery, having had recent SARS-CoV-2 infection in the last couple of years, that population has been actually quite small well, yeah. there. That population is likely to be substantially increased now um uh, and so it's likely that there will be uh, much more evidence to guide clinical management in the future in pediatrics at the moment i would suggest that these guidance are primarily focused on um adults okay. uh, and i would um I'm, perhaps we could we could uh, signpost the um, uh, royal college of pediatrics and child health recommendations for pediatric patients um, the one thing he also um uh, very uh, nicely highlighted is coughs and, coughs and colds, um, uh, and I do want to, uh, you know, I've asked myself this before, if a patient presented pre-pandemic with uh, with the flu,
0: yeah.
1: um, uh, what would I do? And I thought about this and I thought, you know, I, I, I wouldn't proceed to surgery, elective surgery, um, uh, unless I really had to, unless the risks outweigh the benefits in a patient with ongoing flu. Um, and I don't know what everyone else does, different places, I mean some people would say four weeks wait uh, because the risk of airway complications increases, some people shorter, some people longer, but you would still defer surgery if a patient had evidence of flu, Um, and so whilst even if the pandemic vanishes all of a sudden, it's unlikely that this infection will disappear, Uh, and so this is going to be something that we will need to be constantly monitoring and constantly collecting data on um, uh, and analyzing, and thinking about long term. And maybe, just maybe, someone out there may be interested in looking at um, uh, flu, flu yeah. uh, and uh, and collecting robust data on, um, uh, on on you know deferring surgery after flu, which is also an ongoing problem and will likely remain.
0: Okay. Um, Scarlett, have you anything that you would like to add before we draw this to a close? Thank you. I mean, just our final
2: recommendation about, um, patients should address any modifiable risk factors because actually there's other evidence, um, Absolutely. that it improves outcomes, it reduces complications. Um, and we do need people, we need patients to be on board with getting as good as they can possibly be to get through the anaesthetic and the operation um and again there's stuff on the center for Peraptive care uh, website cpop.org.uk and i'm so pleased the journal has made our paper open access absolutely People can yeah. read the paper they can read the patient information leaflet um and just take it into every practice and the shared decision making carries through it should be every encounter with a patient there's always a potential for risk we're discussing the benefits
0: that, that's what it That's what surgery is about absolutely it's a team sport uh tim have you got anything you'd like to add before we round up
3: yeah just very briefly rose um one of the um recommendations we make is is around mode of anesthesia um and yes. we look at this in uh from several directions as it were um so uh, the early data from covid surge suggested that there was no difference in outcome uh, or, or relative risk, whether patients had undergone local anaesthesia, regional anaesthesia, or general anaesthesia. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the later papers have suggested that in as you step up from local to regional to general, there may be an associated increase in risk. Um, of, of course, it's very difficult to completely um, disengage the mode of anaesthesia from the uh, the, the type and extent of surgery. Um, the bigger the surgery, the less likely it is to be done under local, particularly and, and mm-hmm. regional anesthesia. And the the multiplier that, as it were, the escalator that goes with going from local to regional to general anesthesia is more modest than the the multiplier that, that occurs with early surgery. So we've left it simply as a um as a suggestion uh, that uh, not avoidance of general anaesthesia is considered where it's appropriate, but no stronger than
0: that. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, Kareem, have you anything you'd like to add, just as closing statement?
1: Uh, Just that I really want to um, uh, thank all of the the co-authors for their um, really, really hard work and um, the colleges, the Royal College of Anaesthetists, Royal College of Surgeons, um, the Association of Anaesthetists, FSSA, and CPOC for their um, massive support for this work. Uh, We just want to remind everyone, I think, that the pandemic isn't gone, the uh, Omicron isn't gone. and All we want to do is just support people, do what I think is best for patients, Mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, do that in conjunction with patients, um, uh, and not to feel pressured by the backlog, but to do what's right. And and one final, just an, an actual practical note, which I don't think we touched upon, is we should also open the door for patients to tell us as soon as they know that they've tested positive for SARS-CoV-2 yeah. before an operation so that we can plan, risk assess. Uh, and if there is a slot, then we fill that slot with someone else.
0: Okay. So guys, thank you. <laughs> um, it's been really interesting hearing all your thoughts. It's always great to hear from the people actually involved. Um, so, so it's seven weeks stays, but a, ma- a massive focus on risk, Shared decision making, being practical about it, and using the tools that we have in deciding with the patient what the best course of action is. Um. So as Scarlett um reminded us, this paper is uh, open access. It's available online for everybody to see, and I think uh, it's open access forever. Is it, cream Correct? yet Um, So, yeah, so it'll always be there for people to check up on. Um, I'd also, I suppose, just like to thank you all for uh, joining us this evening to um, listen to everybody's thoughts. I hope you found it as interesting as uh, useful as I have um, and as educational as I have. Um, Kareem, Tim and Scarlett, thank you for giving up your evening. Um, I think Tim still has to go back and see his post-ops, so we won't delay him too much longer. And thank you to Mike for facilitating the meeting. He's, as always, done a sterling job on organising the event. So I think I'll drop to a close. Thank you, everybody.
3: Thanks, Rose. Thanks, everyone. No worries. Thank Thank you. Bye. The Anesthesia Podcast.